This morning, congregation, in your Bible, we would direct your attention to a passage found in Exodus chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 28 in the Pew Bible. You can find that on page 72. As we turn there, we remind ourselves that this is the inspired Word of God, which is given to us and is profitable, uh, ultimately for guidance in the way of salvation. It is authoritative for our doctrine uh, and our life. And we also say, in line with the Reformation understanding of Scripture, that the Scriptures are clear. That is, not all passages are perfectly understood, but the way of salvation is clearly revealed uh, within Scripture, uh, and we trust that we will also see that this morning. The way of salvation is clearly revealed uh, unto us as we read from Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire." And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread, until the twenty-first day of the month, at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, 
and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is on the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, within our family's recent move to Pella, Iowa, one of the new experiences that we had uh, was moving to an area where tornadoes are more common. Uh, now, tornadoes are not completely unheard of in western Michigan, but they're extremely, extremely rare. Uh, we had heard, and you no doubt will also know, that they are somewhat more common uh, in this area. And so as we anticipated the move and as we settled in after the move, uh, one of the steps, practical steps of preparation was to identify as a family the safest place in the home to go uh, in case of a tornado. Uh, and we identified such a place, and no doubt many of you also have such a place, uh, a place of safety to go uh, if a tornado were to pass over the area. And then there was a day uh, a number of months ago uh, with extremely high winds. Uh, and we could hear just faintly uh, the tornado sirens go off uh, in the evening, late evening of the day. Uh, and then all of a sudden it became much more crucial not only to have a safe place in which to go, but also then to go to that safe place. And, and boys and girls, you'll understand there's a difference between knowing where that safe place is and then actually going to that safe place. I confess we have a bit of a learning curve uh, to this whole idea because uh, two of the inhabitants of the house, uh, unnamed daughters of mine, decided it would be a good idea to go to Walmart to get some cookies, I believe it was, or perhaps cupcakes uh, for that evening. And I acknowledge it was a paternal oversight that allowed them to go on my part. And then as the tornado sirens went off, I thought, this is not good. Cookies can wait. Cupcakes can wait. They need to get back here as soon as possible so that they can actually go into the safe place. Now, all of this is much more than just some anecdotal story. It serves to illustrate what is revealed within our text. The provision of a safe place, not in some millennial type of silly way, but in a spiritual state of safety. God has provided 
a safe place for sinners to find refuge. And my goal this morning is to identify for you what that safe place is, but also then to encourage and to exhort all of us to remain in that safe place, to find that safe place, to actually take refuge in that safe place, and to never, ever leave that safe place. And so we look at Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28 this morning, with this theme, the blood of the Passover. And with that theme, uh, you will recognize the connection to the administration of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper in the New Testament has replaced uh, the memorial ritual of the Passover in the Old Testament. And so as we administer and as we receive uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, we connect it back to the Passover of the Old Testament, and so we consider the blood of the Passover. We want to notice, first of all, the provision of the blood, and then secondly, the preparation of the blood, and then thirdly, the purpose of the blood. You'll notice the central theme focuses upon blood. Many in our day, whether they be theological liberals, they'll laugh and they'll mock and they'll scorn our bloody theology. They'll say this is archaic. All this talk about the blood. All this talk about the shedding of blood. We simply submit ourselves to the revelation of the Word of God. And in the Word of God, you find the doctrine of a bloody sacrifice of a bloody atonement. That's why we emphasize the blood, not just because we desire to be archaic, we desire to be biblical. Uh, And an honest, simple reading of the Scriptures, especially in chapter 12, you cannot escape the centrality of blood and of shed blood. And as you will see in uh, a few moments, the administration of the Lord's Supper, uh, if you have perception, you will see that there is an emphasis upon blood as it is symbolized in wine. And so where did this blood come from? The provision of the blood, first of all, we'll notice the source and a few of the details. It's interesting to note in Exodus 12, verse 1, a phrase that we can so easily pass over, but it is profitable for us to stop just momentarily and consider it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. And to state it simply this way, congregation, the provision of the blood, of the redemptive blood, of the atoning blood, of the blood that merits the forgiveness of sins, the source is exclusively in the covenantal Lord God. You'll notice in our translation, Lord is capitalized in all of its letters. It ties into that warm, rich, covenantal name that God gives Himself, Yahweh. I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. I will promise that I will never change also in my relationship to my special, chosen, unique, covenantal people. And not just because of a certain capitalization of that name, but whenever we as the Christian community, as the church, whenever we see Lord in the Old Testament and it's all capitalized, we ought to immediately in our souls bow down with haste and worship. This is our covenantal Lord. This is the God who has said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And I will dwell with you, and you will dwell with me. And I will deliver you. And I will take you as my own people. Not because you are a nation who has separated yourselves because of your own internal excellencies, but because I am a God of grace and a God of mercy, and I have merited all that is necessary for your redemption. 
through the substitutionary sacrifice of blood. So it is a sovereign source, a covenantal source. It's also a redemptive source. Note that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron when the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt. Now we might say, well, Egypt, that'd be a a neat place to go, perhaps someday on a trip, uh, see some of the great wonders there. Uh, But much more is involved in this phrase than just simply uh, a geographical location. The land of Egypt symbolizes for the Israelites, for the covenant community, for the Old Testament church, the land of Egypt symbolizes the bondage of oppressive slavery, uh, which then points to a deeper symbolism, the bondage of oppressive slavery uh, of our own sin and of our own sinfulness, something that we are not able, try as we might, we are not able to escape it in and of ourselves. And so if we went through this week of self-examination, and if we said, well, I see this area of sin, and I see that area of sin, I'm just going to double down on my own internal efforts, I'm going to try to overcome these sinful weaknesses by my own strength, well, then we among all men are most to be pitied. Because we, in and of ourselves, can never break the shackles of our sin. Israel, in and of themselves, could never deliver themselves out of the land of Egypt. But thanks be to God that the Lord spoke. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Lord will again speak, as he does to the preaching of the Word of God. And in the preaching of the Word of God this morning, and in the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Lord will say to each and every one of his children here in this congregation, I have accomplished deliverance. Sovereign, covenantal, redemptive Lord provides the blood. And so you'll notice that Israel was to obtain one young, unblemished lamb. What's the significance of this unblemished lamb? There was no imperfection in this lamb that was to be chosen. It was not as if the Israelite shepherd could pick out, you know, the the lamb that was sickly, the lamb that perhaps had fallen by way of injury and had a broken a leg, uh, the undesirable. No, there must be no imperfection. But we begin first with the identification of this lamb. What is the symbolism of this lamb? Well, of course, many of you already perhaps are going to John 1 verse 29 when John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah, he says to Israel, behold, as he looks upon Jesus Christ coming to him out there in the desert, he says, behold, And that word means look, but look with perception, look with understanding. He says to Israel, understand, here, referencing the person of Jesus Christ, here, he says, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in all of these lambs in the Old Testament, in all of these sacrificial lambs, in and through and behind the actual lamb, you must see the person of Jesus Christ. And Israel then was to take one young unblemished lamb pointing to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. We understand as we'll consider also this evening, and so we encourage your uh, attendance this evening also as we consider the incarnation. We understand by the way of the revelation of Scripture that Jesus Christ, yes, fully divine, eternally divine, equal with the Father and the Spirit. But in the fullness of time, he took upon himself very real human nature like unto us in all points, in all manners, with the exception of sin. 
So when we read Exodus 12 and when we read similar passages and when we hear the instruction that the covenantal, sovereign, redemptive Lord says, Israel, take an unblemished lamb, we look beyond the lamb and we see the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. And so especially in the preaching of the word and in the administration of the sacrament uh, this morning, uh, the, the mind of our soul ought to be focused upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you on this Sabbath day, pause everything else. All the worries from the week gone past, all the preparations for the week that goes ahead. And I know our minds can often be filled with fears, doubts, and perplexities. Perhaps we're struggling and wrestling against this or that. And I know that there are relationships and the issues with relationships that often plague us. For a Sunday morning, pause all of that and focus upon the Lord and His provision of a complete and perfect Savior. Well, you'll notice that there had to be the preparation of the blood in our second point. And this preparation of the blood was by way of sacrifice and by way of application. Now, the sacrifice, you'll notice, is perhaps most concisely stated in verse 6 of our text. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day, that is this Passover, of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. This unblemished lamb had to be killed so that there could be the provision of blood. It wasn't enough, boys and girls, to have a lamb, you know, in some type of little pen in the backyard. You say, oh yes, we have a lamb. We can go show you our lamb. It's right here in the backyard. That, that wasn't enough. You had to kill the lamb. And I hope and I pray that this congregation never loses an understanding of the importance of the atonement. Now you may say, well, th these, are, these are deep theological words, and they are, but they are precise theological words. Atonement, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. In a community such as this, perhaps you hear much talk about Jesus Christ, but the danger is, is that talk can become somewhat abstract. Abstract in the sense that People can have this understanding, yes, Jesus Christ is a wise rabbi. Jesus Christ is a good example of how to live and perhaps a noble display of how to die. Jesus Christ is connected perhaps with Christmas, sure. But is there this understanding within our midst that the blood had to be shed? And that shedding of blood only took place by the death of Jesus Christ. And so you will well remember the narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and it's not uh, the best way to try to describe these things through pictures. Jesus Christ could have given us pictures of the death of Jesus Christ, but he didn't. He gave us the word. But through the revelation of the Word, we know that it was a bloody scene. 
Not only the beatings that our Lord endured, and not only the crown of thorns that had been pressed upon his head, but then also, of course, the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, it would have been a bloody scene. And then you add to that the spear entering into his side, and blood or water flowed out. There was the provision of blood, just as there would have been the provision of blood here with the shedding of the death of the Lamb. And this is so necessary because of what is stated in Hebrews 9, verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so if liberal theology tries to take away our bloody Savior, we with a holy covetousness say, no, you dare not, you cannot take away my bloody Savior, because I need Him for the remission of my sins. See, it's not just that we're emphatic on these points of doctrine, just that we can say, yes, we hold to the old traditional understanding of theology. It's much more personal than that. And so when someone begins to reinterpret what happened at the cross along the lines of what has historically been known as the moral influence theory and says here on the cross Jesus Christ is just showing how much he loves the world and how compassionate he is to the world. We say yes, we know his love and we know his compassion, but he's doing more than just showing that to us. He is shedding his blood so that we might have the forgiveness of sins because we deal with a holy and a righteous God. And that also points out why the lamb had to be roasted in fire. Fire is symbolic of God's justice and God's vengeance. And God is indeed a God of justice. How can you consider the Passover without recognizing the wonderful combination, so to speak, of God's attributes? And we understand that in God, His attributes are all one. We make distinctions within them following Scripture, and you see in Exodus 12 that God is indeed a God of grace and of mercy, passing over the houses of the Israelites. But you also see, do you not, that God is a God of wrath? Because what is the angel termed in Exodus chapter 12? The angel of the Lord. The angel of death. And why does the angel of death come to Egypt? Because of the idolatrous sin of Egypt. And what does the angel of death do? He enters into the houses that are not covered with blood. And he kills the firstborn. And if we understand the holy wrath of God against sin, then we will need, then we will need the blood of the atonement. Then we will understand the importance of the sacrifice of blood. But notice also in verse 7, that something more had to be done, you might say. The congregation, verse 6, shall kill it, that is, the Passover lamb at twilight. And then verse 7, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. You might say around the door, the, the main entry door. Now, in our days, perhaps we have you know, more than one door into the house. Uh, in this context, there would have been one entry door. And that's where, of course, you would enter and where you would exit. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, as he made his way through the land, now not that the, the angel of the Lord had to materially and physically enter into the front door. This was highly symbolic. But the blood as it is applied around the doorpost, you might say this bars 
entry to the angel of death. And the text is quite clear that when the angel of death makes its way through the land of Egypt on this night, he would stop by each and every house because each and every human being is morally culpable before a holy God, and so none will escape unless, unless there's blood on the doorpost. And you can almost allow your mind, and again, carefully following the revelation of Scripture, you see the angel of death in the middle of the night as he goes from house to house, stopping, looking, observing. And if there is no blood on the door, he enters in with the wrath of Almighty God and brings about death. And if there is blood, he passes on. What a weighty picture. What a solemn activity. From house to house to house. What an important obligation for the head of the house. To take hyssop, a type of leafy branch, and to dip it into the blood of the lamb, and to apply it on the doorpost. You know, as the children of these covenantal families grew in understanding, and as they came to know the significance, don't you think that they would have paid very, very, very careful attention to this detail? You know, this wasn't one of those things that the head of the house would have said, ah, yeah, if I have time today, I'll get around to that. I have quite a long list of to-dos, and if I get everything else accomplished, then yeah, I'll also, I'll also put the, the blood on the doorpost. The blood had to be there. But I also want you to note, as I also note myself, what's stated there in verse 22, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. You see, congregation, it was vitally important that the blood be on the doorpost. But then it was also of equal vital importance that the members be in the house. You know, there are times that as me and my wife get ready to go to sleep at night. She'll ask, are the children home? And that's not because our children are out at all kinds of unbecoming hours. It's really because we go to bed so early. And, and that's an important question. What about this night? Can you imagine Israelite mothers checking the beds twice? Israelite fathers saying this is the Passover. Make sure you are in the house. Because tonight is the night in which the angel of death will come through Egypt. Now there are many, many things that parents hope for their children. And there are many, many, so to speak, accomplishments that, that we 
place great emphasis upon. And, and there are many things that Christian families also are involved in and that are dedicated to. And some of them perhaps are, are good, some of them perhaps are neutral. But the great fear is that an emphasis begins to be placed on things that are at best secondary in relationship to our covenantal children. Certainly for some of our academically intelligent children, well, we, we hope that they have prosperous studies at universities, and we hope that they get well-paying jobs. We hope that they can contribute profitably to society. And we hope that they have blessed marriages, and that those marriages, if God wills, are also blessed with children. Now, perhaps we look you know, even more immediately and we say, well, 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 I hope this or I hope that for my children. Uh, but there's something about Exodus 12, verse 22, that puts it all into eternal perspective. On this night in which the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, do you think the Israelite fathers and mothers you think their big concern was, well, I hope my son or I hope my daughter has the right GPA. Now, I'm not denying the validity of having a good GPA. I'm just putting it into an eternal perspective, which is so necessary for us sometimes. And do you think they said, well, well I, I, I hope my, my son or daughter has a, a profitable career. Now, certainly we hope those things for our sons and daughters, but they're Secondary at best. I believe that the faithful fathers and mothers of Israel that night said, our children must be in the house. And as we see the blood, and as we see the body of the Lord Jesus Christ symbolized in our midst, our desire for ourselves as well as for our children and our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren is that by God's grace they would dwell in the house covered with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when the angel of death passes over. And notice also verse 22 is not just this emphasis, you must be in the house, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. It would have been the most foolish thing to say, well, I'm going to go outside tonight, Dad, and just look around and see what's going on. I want to see if I can see this angel of death going down the streets. I want to see what the Egyptians are doing tonight. I want to see what's happening in the, the town, in the village, in the community. And so this morning, and this word comes out of pastoral love, but also pastoral concern for the young people of this congregation, especially during your teenage years, and then also following that, when you go off to the colleges and off to the universities, don't go out of the house of the Lord. Don't say, well, I want to see how the world lives for a while. Well, I want to try this religion. I want to see how they do it over there. Well, I, I, I think my parents and I think those elders and I think that minister, I think they're just old-fashioned. I think that's why they emphasize so much that Christ is the only mediator and the only way that there is forgiveness of sins. Why do we emphasize these things? Because we know, based upon the authority of the Word of God, the only thing that can provide us with safety and security, spiritually speaking, for time and for eternity, is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
with love and with passion that flows out of love. And it's not, of course, only for the young people. It's for all of us. And we well understand the perseverance of the saints, but part of the way in which the saints persevere is by these exhortations. So don't go out of the house. The statistics are alarming. The percentage and the numbers of young people associated with churches who lose their way, so to speak, spiritually, from 18 to 25. Don't go out of the house. Well, what is the purpose of this blood? In our third point, briefly, because we've already identified it, so we can just summarize it. The purpose of this blood was a covering, but also a separating purpose. The purpose of this blood was covering uh, and this, of course, ties in with this idea of propitiation and of an atoning sacrifice. And it also ties in the Day of Atonement. So you see these pictures uh, layered, you might say, time and time again in ceremony after ceremony, in religious ritual after religious ritual, a covering, a covering for sinners to find refuge in and under the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the only covering. And it was also illustrated on the Day of Atonement when the high priest went in. Once again, you notice the high priest went into the holy place, the most holy place with blood. And what did he do with that blood? You can read about this in Leviticus 16 and also 17. He sprinkled it upon the mercy seat as a covering. And as the angel symbolic of God's holiness looked down upon the Ark of the Covenant in which there was contained among other items the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, in between the angels symbolizing God's holiness and the moral code which we have continually violated, there was a layer of blood to cover the repentant sinner. And so even in the words of the administration of the Lord's Supper, you will hear the remission of sin, the forgiveness of sin that only comes through the blood. And so to anyone and everyone who hears these words, do not trust in yourself, do not trust in anything other than the blood. Because only the blood is sufficient to cover our sins. But you'll also notice uh, that this purpose of blood included a separating purpose. By this blood and by the action of God's judgment, he made clear that there was a separation between himself as the one true God and the gods of Egypt. Now Egypt had all kinds of gods. Especially in the realm of nature, it would seem that everything to the Egyptians was a god. And that increasingly is what we find in our day. And we don't identify them perhaps as gods. Our culture doesn't say they are gods. Uh, but our culture is fine with what we call polytheism. I mean, if you and I were to stand in the public square and we say, we believe that everything is God, well, they would acknowledge that. Perhaps they would even agree with it. And perhaps they would even give us certain accolades. If we were to buy into pantheism or panentheism. But no, you see, the problem the culture has with us, or at least the problem they should have with us, is that we stand and we say, there is one only true God. And that's what the Israelites believed in contrast to the Egyptians. And on this night of the Passover, the Lord would make very, very, very clear that He alone is God. And he would do so in an act of judgment. By which there was a devastating distinction. 
between homes that were covered in blood and homes that were not covered in blood. And on the morning following the Passover, one household would be wailing and another house would be leaving. And of course, this separation points forward to eternity and to the final judgment. Because when, and notice we never use the word if, when Christ returns, because it is an absolutely certain event, when Christ returns, there will be this remarkable distinction. There will be many who meet him with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is nothing less than the words of Christ. But to those who are covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, there will not be weeping, nor wailing, nor gnashing of teeth. There will be shouts of holy joy, songs of exuberant praise, as we see our Lord and Savior face to face. So notice this morning the importance of the provision of the blood, but also then taking refuge within that blood. May God bless his word to that end. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we pause from the busyness of our lives, as we live them out here uh, in a secular realm, we thank you, Lord, for a provision, for a perfect and a sufficient provision of redemptive blood in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also thank you that you have so clearly revealed to us that we must find refuge in that blood and in that Savior through the personal exercise of faith. And so as these words were spoken, we ask that you would bless them, that you would stir up the holy activity of such faith in the young and in the old and in all who are in between. And may we then come with that faith and receive now the elements of the Lord's Supper. May our weak faith then be encouraged, and may your name be glorified both now and forevermore. Amen.